Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Casper the Ghost, our new producer. <laughs> Say hi, Casper. Hi. Yeah, Jerry's on vacation. Guest producer Tristan came in and tapped the record button with his nose, mm-hmm. as is per tradition. Yep. And then he left. So as here we are now, again. That's the new tradition. People just come in and be like, yeah, here you go, see you. Boy, remember the old days when guest producers would clamor to get in here and witness the magic? I remember. <laughs> I can remember. Now they draw lots and just go, all right, I guess I'll go hit record then leave. I like to think it's because they're all overworked. That's why. And that it's not like, you know, we're, we're passe. No. Could be both, though, I guess. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm, I'm excited about this one. I, it's nice to have something that doesn't, you know have that much weight to it. Yeah, I needed a little uh, lighter break. Uh, and big thanks, by the way, to Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Just came back from Denver for two sold-out shows. Two great shows. Yeah, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I had fun as well. It was a good show. I think that second one, for my money, is the one we should release as our, the, the version of that show. Which live shows have we released? I know Chicago was Pinto's? PR. PR, right. Pinto's was Atlanta because that was the benefit show. And what what about D.B. Cooper? D.B. Cooper was Seattle, I believe. And then Grave Robbing was somewhere in the U.K., I would imagine. I think, I think it was London. All right, so we have not released a Denver show. No, we definitely haven't. We mm-hmm. have not. So this could be the one, if you ask me. It, it was just on and popping. Well, for, for my money. you know me, I don't like to overthink these things, so I'm generally just prone to say, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. That's very nice of you. Sure. Let, let's me get away with a lot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, Chuck, <clears throat> I'm prepared now. Are you? Yes. Well, then let us begin talking about jobs that just aren't around anymore. An old stuff you should know, top 10, which means we'll do, what, eight? Maybe, if we feel like it. Certainly not 10, I'll tell you that. I agree. So there's actually this article I thought started out pretty cleverly, talking about some jobs that are probably going to be extinct in the near future, at least as far as the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is concerned. I didn't even look at that part, so. So there's a few coming up. Word processors and typists. Mm. Not not a lot of time left on that profession. Yeah. Door-to-door sales workers, which I took issue with. Because I uh, I can see people wanting that personal touch of being bothered and harassed by a salesperson, you know? I didn't your, even know that still home. happened. Yeah, I think now it mostly happens like, don't you want to sign this this um, petition or something like that? That's oh, okay. usually the door-to-door thing. Not like then, here's a vacuum cleaner or a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. I, do you know how just blown away you would be if somebody came up to your door and tried to sell you a <laughs> vacuum cleaner? You'd be like, what's your angle? Are you casing my house? Or encyclopedias. I mean, that's even more old-fashioned. At least you still use vacuum cleaners. Yeah, for sure. That's true. Uh, the last one on this list was mail carriers, which— Whoa. I don't know, man. I could see—I could see there's always going to be a need for physical correspondence, or there will be for a very long time. I don't know about that one. But the upshot yeah. of all this is, is this, Chuck. There is this guy who you both, you and I know uh, named John Maynard Keynes. Mm-hmm. And he, he is an economist. He was an economist, a liberal economist. And he wrote, wrote back in 1930 
uh, an essay called Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren. And it's actually like a quick, easy read. Yeah. But in it, he basically said, 100 years hence, so by 2030, we will have done away with work. We'll have automated basically every process you can think of, and humans will be totally out of work. And he said that will be a really good thing because we will still be generating wealth, Mm -hmm. but we just won't have to work. So people will start writing bad poetry and and (laughs) painting terrible paintings, and eventually we'll get better and better, and there'll be like a, a big blooming of the arts and of like interpersonal relationships and things like that, and we'll just be able to hang out and chill. And we've come close to that, but there's a lot of there were a lot of holes in Keynes's argument, whereas, like, if, you, if you're going to do this, you kind of have to figure out a way to distribute the wealth evenly or else you just end up with the people who own the machines or mm-hmm. the ones who get wealthy and everybody else is just out of work. But setting all of that aside, there is a silver lining to the idea that jobs can be extinct. And these, this list of jobs, to me, kind of shows, like, okay, you know, we move on without this kind of stuff. Yes, it's rough for the people who had that job, but you can get new training and learn another job, which for my money is part and parcel with getting rid of one job. You need to train somebody for another job as long as we humans can work. Yeah, and it's uh, – I think with most jobs, it's not like – I mean, in some cases, the thing just no longer exists. But if it's replaced by a better or newer technology or mm-hmm. both, mm-hmm. then then that becomes the job. So I've never bought into this whole, like, you know, we need to protect the, these jobs that are p- surely antiquated sure, uh, just to keep these people in work. It's like, no, nah, man, you got to roll with the times. You do, but I think that one of the roles of, like, government or, or even industry is to to provide training to keep up with those times. Sure, if, if so, someone so chooses, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Now, if it's all robots doing everything all the time, then we should be able to choose not to, and you should have a nice universal basic income. But someone has to build and fix those robots, and <clears throat> well, co- you build other robots to do that. Call the materials, and yeah. Mm-hmm. At some point, I just I don't think I agree with him fully that nobody will be working at some point. You disagree with Keynes? <laughs> all right, let's get to it. Because the, right. first, the first job on this list, I don't think anybody was really sad to see go. Although that's not necessarily true. There were fans. Well, and I know one person in particular was probably pretty sad. Who? Well, we'll get to him. Okay. Chariot racing. <laughs> yeah, that's an extinct job. You cannot anywhere in the world find a professional chariot racer as far as we know. Yeah, but this was one that was a very, very big sport mm-hmm. back in the day and was... Uh, literally like NASCAR was today. Very much so, yeah. I mean, they had, uh, if you if you look at, let's say, they called the, the, the track circuses. Mm-hmm. If you look at Circus Maximus in ancient Rome, this thing, I mean, these things started out where people could just like sit on the hillside and watch races, but okay. it evolved into Circus Maximus, which held 150,000 spectators. I saw 250,000. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, let's just say it's somewhere between that then. <laughs> right. Between those two numbers. Either way, it's super impressive. Agreed. Yeah. And, of course, if you don't know what a chariot race is, it's very simple. It's just a race where a horse pulls a man in a in a little two-wheeled vehicle called a chariot. Yeah. Everyone's seen a chariot. And the, the depictions I've always seen from cartoons to movies actually apparently were very um, accurate. It's like 
closed off in the front and then kind of tapered down the sides and open in the back. There was one axle with two wheels, and it was connected to a team of horses, usually about four horses, maybe two, maybe six. Um, and it went really, really fast, and it was really, really flimsy. So if you collided with another chariot, there was a pretty good chance your chariot was going to disintegrate and you were going to be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, just sort of like modern race cars, uh, the chariots they designed for military battle were not like this. They were very sturdy, often had a lot of metal and reinforcements. But if you were out there racing, you you know, you wanted to win. So your chariot was super light, mm-hmm. probably just made of wood. You were probably standing on that axle. It's not like they, you know, you were sitting on some big throne in the center of your chariot. Right. And uh, it was sort of like horse racing. They would You would draw lots for position. They would drop the white cloth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then up to 12 racers at a time, you know, the gates would open and you were off. Yeah, and there were, at the height of the Roman Empire, there were four and then later on six teams. There was a red team, a white team, a blue team, and a green team yeah. originally. Then they added purple and gold. And like you said, this is like NASCAR. There are people devoted to these teams like they're devoted to racers today or like to football or soccer today. Um, Just fanatics. There was a story that Pliny wrote of a guy who was a fan of the red team. And when one of the red team racers died, the fan threw himself onto his funeral pyre, killed himself (laughs) out of grief. Wow. Which, you know, that happens weekly in NASCAR. Oh, sure. You know? <laughs> uh, except they throw themselves on their uh, their turkey fryer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I picked that. I think that's probably pretty accurate, man. I'll bet there's a lot of turkey fryers. Or, or maybe their part. barbecue pit. How about that? Sure. One of the two. Uh, so the dude I mentioned that was pr- probably pretty sad to see it go, although he did finish his career. Uh, it's not like the, the sport went away. Uh, his name was Gaius Diocles. I haven't heard of this cat. He was someone who was likely one of the most rich people in ancient Rome. Wow. That was not a, uh, a member of, you know, royalty or whatever. Uh, he raced from the 18 to the age of 42. Wow. Uh, close to 4,300 races. And I was trying to find out some sort of, some kind of ballpark conversion of their money mm-hmm. compared to our money today. And most everyone with a brain on the internet said, no, don't even bother. Uh, although some people were like, it's really just like a one-to-one ratio. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't buy that. But supposedly he amassed a, a wealth of $36 million, uh, whatever you, however you pronounce that, sesterces. I haven't seen that word before ever. That was their money. I don't know. S-E-S-T-E-R-C-E-S. Yeah, I've never seen that. So, I mean, let's say it is a dollar, then uh, about 36 million bucks, which made him one of the richest people. Yeah, it is It is impossible that the ratio or the conversion is a dollar to like one to one. I would think so, right? Yeah, that's totally impossible. <laughs> yeah, that was just some dummy on uh, like answerthis.com or something. So, yeah, I'm tired of thinking about this. Just say it's one to one. I think it was from the web- website Take a stab at it. dot com. <laughs> but that guy raced from eighteen to forty two, huh? Eighteen years old, and apparently he not only was super rich, but he kept a lot of records of his races. So he's mm-hmm. one of the only people we can look back on and say, you know, he raced this. I mean, he only won about a third of his races, too. It looked like so. But even still, just surviving that many races is oh, mind boggling. Yeah. Like this is really dangerous. You know, like if you're 
if your chariot basically exploded, you had lashed the reins to your horses around your waist to stabilize yourself better. And you were still connected to your horses by your waist. And now they were dragging you possibly to death. So most 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 uh, racers carried a knife on them to cut themselves loose in case. And they weren't always quick enough with it. Yeah, and then you had to get your knife out while you're being drugged mm-hmm. at however many miles an hour or whatever they used to distinguish speed. Plus there was always like a bad guy villain like in the Ben-Hur race who was trying to like <laughs> chop up your chariot and, and whip you. Yeah, I didn't see rules as far as that went. Is mm. like... Were they clean races, or was it you could, you know, stick a a, uh, a staff through somebody's wheel and flip them over? I did not see. I bet there was a range of activities. Yeah. That'd be my guess. Well, you want to take a break? Should we already? I mean, that chariot race took up a lot more time than I thought. <laughs> this is going to be like a three-hour episode. Uh, yeah, let's take a break, and we'll do, what, four more? Yes. Then take another break? Sounds good. All right. All right, we're back, Chuck, with yes. another old job that's not around anymore. <laughs> this one's armorer. Yes. Which is hard to say. It really strains the back necks, the back neck muscles. Yeah, I mean, there is a modern job called an armorer, but we're talking about the the dudes in the Middle Ages who would build your body armor. Mm-hmm. Which was, I mean, extraordinarily skilled craft. Like, you couldn't go to school to learn how to be an armorer. You basically had to be born the son of an armorer because the, the skill was passed along from father to son. And secrets of how to make these, these um, suits of armor were kept very closely secret by, um, by the, the people who knew what they were doing because they had a lot of competition. And so, as a result historians and I guess armor specialists of today still have questions about how some of these guys made some of these amazing suits of armor because they didn't leave any evidence of exactly how they did it. Yeah, I mean, the process would start as just like a, uh, what are the people that make suits? Uh, A tailor. tailor. (laughs) Like a tailor might today. So you would lumber up, you uh, you would strip down to your linens, and they would take your measurements Mm -hmm. and then make a replica of your body, uh, if they so had the time, out of wood or something. Right. Because it would take a long time. Like, you couldn't, if you wanted a quality suit of armor, you couldn't go in there and, say, turn it around in a week. Like, sometimes it would take months and even more than a year. Yeah, I saw years in some cases. Yeah, because if you want the good stuff, you got to go. And these people made a lot of money. They... They were like a subset of the smithies, like you said. Like, mm-hmm. it was not something that everyone was good at. So they would spend a lot of time with wealthy people. They made a lot of money themselves. And so they had kind of a much higher standing uh, as opposed to, like, a regular smithy might. Yeah, and and the suits of armor that we see today, um, the ones you think of, usually like a, a British knight or something like that wearing it, those were made of, like, high-quality steel. Mm-hmm. But steel back then, this was, like, fairly fairly early after we really figured out how to make steel reliably. Yeah. And um, 
it was a real bear to work with because you would have to, you'd hammer it and then you'd have to heat it up again and hammer it some more and it would cool as you were hammering it and you'd have to heat it up again. So it was really tough to work with, but it was pretty strong. Um, the thing is, because steel was rare, it was also very expensive to work with. And so the suits of armor we see today, like in museums and things, usually come from the 16th century. And even though they were making suits of armor similar to that and as far back as like the 14th and 15th centuries, you don't see those because they reused that old steel from the old suits of armor into the new ones. And then they finally ended in the 16th century when they stopped making suits of armor. But that's why you only see almost exclusively 16th century suits of armor. That makes sense. I also mm-hmm. saw that it, um, they tried to set up shop near the materials. So instead of having to transport stuff long distances, and, I, and it sounds like it was in pretty high demand if, like, you know, let's say someone died in battle, mm-hmm. and then they would say they wouldn't just leave that stuff out there. Somebody would go and no gather way. up all this yeah. stuff. Um, so I think just living near the product uh, or the base materials was a big advantage yep. if you were an armorer. Yeah, and armorers kept up their trade. I mean, eventually the the um, so muskets came along. Sure, and goodbye at, armor. <laughs> well, at first it made armor even better. It like pushed the development of armor plating along even further. But then it, it outpaced musket development, outpaced armor development, and then there was no reason to have um, armor any longer because you could just shoot right through it. Yeah, but but up to that point. The armor plating got better, but then people stopped wearing as much of it until you basically had a chest plate and a back plate, and you would see people battling still. I think even uh, Napoleon's troops wore uh, chest and, and uh, back plate armor, and in the American Civil War, even, and that's they were, it. They were naked despite that, <laughs> <laughs> right? They're like, it's so cold. But the, the, well, no, one more thing. The, in the American Civil War, there were people who sold chest plates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that was about as, as late as it went. Late 19th, early 20th century, you could still find an army here or there wearing a breastplate maybe. Yeah, I imagine that even later on with the advent of muskets, uh, something that could stop an arrow mm-hmm. or a, or a, uh, a knife sword strike. or a sword – like, you would probably still feel pretty good about wearing that. Sure. As long as it wasn't too heavy. One thing I saw that I thought was pretty ridiculous was that one of the reasons um, soldiers didn't didn't wear them more widespread in the Civil War in mm-hmm. America was, one, it was tough to, to lug around. They got heavy. So when you're on the march, you sure. don't really want to carry that. But then secondly, like, they would be chided as cowards by, oh, their, yeah. by their fellow soldiers, which is like, are you a coward just for taking an extra step of of protection, an extra measure of protection when you're out there on the battlefield? I, I don't, I don't, I'm wondering if I'm missing something. I don't know. I mean, maybe back then it was just getting that time where they were like, oh, Sally backplate over there. <laughs> right. He doesn't want to take an arrow to the back. Or if you were Richie Rich because you could afford a breastplate and everybody else couldn't, so they just kind of peer pressured you into dying along with them. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Peer pressure you into dying. <laughs> yeah. So really, it's the worst the, peer pressure of all. It's pretty bad. You don't want to succumb to that peer pressure. So in this case, the armorer, and we didn't say in the last one, the chariot racers went away with the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. This job, armorer went away basically when when muskets became capable of piercing steel. Yeah, and after that, like I said, it may help with the the odd arrow or knife thrust. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But uh, maybe a throwing star. <laughs> the famous throwing stars of the Civil War. <laughs> uh, shall we move on? Yeah, man, moving along, we're going to stick around in the Middle Ages and just kind of head on over to the court jester. Yeah, I think this is one where there's a lot of uh, misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, because while in the Middle Ages there were court jesters who would dance around with the uh, colored cloths and the and the little hat with the bells on it and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that did occur. But from what I gathered... The general court jester didn't really wear that that often. No, and I think one of the other misconceptions, too, is that they were kind of lunkheads or dummies or just simpletons. Who knows, however you want to put it, when actually they were extraordinarily astute, usually among the highest educated people in, in any given country, certainly in a court, um, and that they were less fools and more satirists. Yeah, all right. So let's let's break this down. There were a few different types. The type you're talking about is the the legit court jester who would generally perform at the behest of the court. Right. Uh, and those are the ones that were sometimes some of the only people who could speak ill of the king or queen as a satirist, uh, you know, but you still would run a risk, you know, if you took it too far. Imagine there was more than one court jester who found their their head on a stake at some point. For sure. Actually, I think the last one known to have lived, um, Dickie Pierce, who was the fool to the Earl, Earl of Suffolk, uh, fell to his death from a pulpit. And they think they the official line is that he slipped, but um, somebody thinks that he may have actually been pushed by somebody who didn't like his <laughs> little shove his shtick yeah <laughs> so uh it, it says in this one article i found that three types of fool emerged and mm-hmm. that one was the official court jester uh a lot of times they would just wear normal clothes rather than that uh, little outfit that we all know is the mm-hmm. court jester mm-hmm. uh, but then there were definitely uh noble families and wealthy people who would adopt uh, men and women who had mental illness or some sort of physical deformity and they were a little more, they called them innocent fools, and they weren't paid. They were just kept around almost like amusing pets. Mm-hmm, like Wild Peter from the Feral episode. Yeah. The Feral, Feral Children episode. Yeah, and they would get like food and clothes and lodging and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which I think was saying quite a bit sure. at this time. Yeah, because that was, that had value. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then they said the third class was uh, were people of the, members of the fool societies Mm-hmm. Uh, that were big in France. And I think these were more of like what we would consider now like a Ren fair performer. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, exactly. And they would definitely wear those outfits and really play it up. Right. So um, the the type of fool that that belonged to a court, that um, they actually had like a really important position in a kingdom because like you said, they were satirists. Um, and they, they could satirize at their own peril, but they, they were also capable, I, I think, of surviving by bringing it right up to the line, by knowing just how, how far you could press sure. the king or the queen um, or the court. But in doing this, you, could, you, could, you, you provided a service to your fellow countrymen in that you could keep the king from getting bored and maybe going off to war um, uh, inadvisably or coming up with some terrible new laws or if there were some terrible new laws the jester was in a, a position to make fun of them 
satirically and maybe make the king rethink these policies to yeah. help out your fellow your fellow people. So it was a very important position because you were basically the only person in the entire court who had the ability to speak freely. And again, it was at your own peril to an extent, but for the most part, it was accepted that you could poke fun at the king and the court and policy and the state of affairs. I imagine it was a bit of a nerve-wracking job. Sure. Uh, you would also do other things sometimes. Uh, you would have other jobs like keeper of the hounds. Sometimes they would buy the livestock for the family. Uh, and then during times of war, they would actually function um, almost as like a USO might. Mm-hmm. Like they would be brought to the front lines to entertain, uh, well, to, to, to do two things. They would entertain their own troops to kind of try and ease them before battle, or they would mock the other side. Yeah. Uh, and try and like try and actually thwart their plan because they would get so mad at the jester they would not be thinking clearly and like make some kind of mistake. Right. Because of because, the taunting. Yeah, because the jester farted in their general direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because I did see a lot of times they would be rewarded with land at the end of their tenure. Uh-huh. <laughs> and King Henry II gave his jester 30 acres upon retirement as long as he came back every Christmas to leap, whistle, and fart. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. He's like, you get one leap, one whistle, and one fart. (laughs) And if your fart sounds like a whistle, then... (laughs) He just knocked out two birds with one stone. Yep. Nice. So this this job, I'm not entirely sure why it went away. I think we need jesters more than ever. Um, But the last one, like I said, was Dickie Pierce who was fool to the Earl of Suffolk, and he died in 1728 of misadventure. Oh, really? Well, yeah, he fell from that pulpit. (laughs) Maybe shoved, yeah. Possible homicide. Yeah, I guess the closest thing we have now are either political cartoonists or the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Or the Onion. Or the Onion. Who, man, they've just been killing it since day one. Yeah. Still, after all this time and... And evolution, the onion is still just doing great stuff. Agreed. Um, moving on. Yeah. So we're going to advance forward a little bit to the <laughs> Victorian England, to the late 19th century. Yeah. And I had never heard of this job before, had you? No, but we have talked a lot in the past about the sheer buildup of horse manure Uh, before cars were invented. I can't remember the stat in New York City, but it's astounding. I found one in London that there were a thousand tons of horse poop generated a day in London streets. A thousand tons. A thousand tons. And like this stuff would just be right there in the middle of the street. There was also trash. There was also human waste. There was just all sorts of stuff. Terrible stuff everywhere. And Part of the problem was that the Victorian era was really big on pomp and overdoing fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, There were long trains to dresses, lots of skirts over skirts and all this stuff. So the idea of walking through horse poop was not not very pleasing to the upper echelons of uh, English society at the time. No, they would, I mean, one of their many employees would have to clean that up later. Exactly, right. (laughs) Uh, but apparently they were very big with um, appearances, so they didn't want to even go a second without with getting, like, any horse poop or any trash or anything on them. So thus evolved a job from this uh, this era called crossing sweepers. Yeah, and this—I saw a lot of different reactions to this from various historical websites that I went to. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people saw this as a pretty valuable job, mm-hmm. um, and then most people I saw— found it a bit of an annoyance in that it was 
if you had any skill or were physically able, you would not be a crossing sweeper. It was what they called a last chance job. Sure. I saw I saw both. I saw a combination of those. I read an article by a woman named Jerry Walton, who I think kind of did pretty good um, his, historical research on it. And she seemed to come up with the idea that you're right on both counts. Okay. There were some people who had, who dedicated themselves to this. They were regular crossing sweepers. And they had, like, posts. Like, they had a corner. That was their corner. Right. And over time, they became kind of a, a fixture of the neighborhood, maybe the eyes and ears of the neighborhood. I, I read of one um, crossing sweeper who actually helped apprehend a murderer by, by going to the cops and telling, him what, telling them what he saw. Oh, sure. Um, but I also saw that there were that this was basically the the last stop before beggar, but but much more respectable than just being an outright beggar. At least you were providing a service. You could also very easily become a nuisance, though, too, if you held your hand out afterward or pestered people who were just trying to cross the street. Yeah, I mean they liken it in this article maybe a little insensitively to uh, people who will clean your windshield at a stoplight today. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But again, even with that, that I have seen a range of window cleaning services mm-hmm. that range from like, nice work, here's a good tip, to like, let me spit on your windshield <laughs> and rub it with my sleeve. Yeah. And I think it was kind of probably similar back then. Right. Uh, sometimes there were little kids who would do it or super old people or uh, you might be disabled and that is your last chance to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people, like you said, had had one of two attitudes, either – you're doing it right, and this is a good service, or this is sort of a glorified uh, begging. Yeah, and I saw that for the most part it was kids. The The proclaimed king of the crossing sweeps was 11 years old, an 11-year-old boy, and that they would also add some acrobatics in on the side to really, <laughs> to really drive home just how great what they were doing was. What? Like what? Like little flips and like probably <laughs> probably what we would call parkour here or there today, something like that. But they're you know just little nimble like uh-huh. kids who were able to just hop around and do some some quick acrobatics and then probably hold their cap out and say thanks, have a good day. Wow, what a time! I'm, yeah. So um, one thing though that was good about this is that it was something that anybody could start as a business and take seriously. With just the investment of a broom. That's all you needed. Right. Low barrier to entry is what they call that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and then eventually, as like sanitation improved and fashions changed, the, the crossing sweeper was less and less necessary, and they evolved into the grocery store bagger. <laughs> you were planning that one at, way in advance, huh? I, it just rolled <laughs> off of my tongue. Did it? Yeah. All right. Good job. And as I was saying, I was like, man, this is going to offend the baggers, and I don't mean it like that. No, that's all right. All right. That's Sorry, a valuable baggers. job. Especially Publix baggers who bag delicious cake all the time. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> Should we break now or do the last four or do one and then three? Let's do one and then three. I'm 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 feeling good about things. All right. Well, we'll move on to the lamplighters. No way. I changed my mind. Okay. We're going to take a break, okay? (laughs) We'll get to Lamplighters right after this. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay, Chuck, thanks for rolling with me on that one. Sure. So you said lamplighters were doing next? I mean, I guess we're doing all this chronologically, right? Well, it sort of is, in a way. Yeah, because we started out with chariots, and now we're up. We're still in the late 19th century. Yeah, and this is, man, this is something. I had a uh, a gas lamp growing up at my house, mm. and I really, really would like to get a gas lamp put in on the front porch of my house. You know, that can happen. Yeah, I mean, you just got to run gas to it, right? Yeah, that's it. And then come and pay a lamplighter to come light it every every evening and cut it off every every morning. Yeah, I just love the look. Like, there's a few in our neighborhood, and every mm-hmm. time I see one, I, I pine for it. I think you should treat yourself. To a gas lamp? Yeah. Really says a lot, you know? It does. It says, <laughs> I have conquered fossil fuels in my very own house. I wonder how this, wasteful that is compared to electricity. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. I think you should find out and, and just do it. I think you should do it and report back on it, okay? I can always buy carbon offsets, right? Totally. <laughs> All right, so lamp lighters, like we said, in the days uh, in the 19th century of gas lamps lighting up all of, of let's say, London again, mm-hmm. uh, someone had to light these, and there were a lot of them. So it's not like, I mean, this was there were a lot of people doing this job. Yeah, usually you would have something like under 100 but over 50 lamps I saw. Um, at least for Lowell, Massachusetts, but um, I think Lowell was a, a mid-sized city at the time. It said seventy thousand people in the like I think eighteen eighty census. So that's decent size for the nineteenth century, you know. Um, but it's certainly nothing like what London had at the time. And so, they had tens of thousands of lamps. Right, right. But I imagine that that they probably didn't overtax their lamplighters more than, say, Lowell did. So say say somewhere around 70 to 80 lamps um, is what one lamplighter would be responsible for. They'd have a beat. Yeah, I mean, that's a—I don't know how uh, far apart their position, but that's a, that's a full day's work, I would imagine, or full evening. Well, yeah, it, it could—it lasted for a while, and I didn't— get the impression of what you do in between, but you would wait around until dusk came, and then you would start your your route and start lighting the lamps. And then after any respectable person was asleep, you would go out and extinguish them, or before daybreak or around daybreak, you'd go extinguish them. And then you would eat your breakfast, and then you'd set about repairing the lamps, refilling them as need be and, like, getting it rid of any soot and smudge. And maybe if a lamp got knocked over, you'd have to set it back up again. So it sounded like it was, you know, there's a decent amount of work to it, but supposedly it was a very safe job from what I've read. Yeah, I mean, they do mention ladders in here, but I also saw that m- many of them were uh, lit from below with a long uh, lighter mm-hmm. or and extinguisher that was all kind of in one, on one pole. Very ingenious. Yes, I don't know that they were climbing ladders all over town. No, you could just raise it up. It'd be easier to walk with just that long staff than to walk with a ladder. So Yeah, because yeah. you could also stab somebody in the eye with it. Right. Any masher comes at you, bam, bam, pow, pow. <laughs> uh, mainly men held these jobs, but there were some women, apparently, in London that did so. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it was pretty safe. Uh, it's not like these things weren't running on gasoline you know, like whale blubber, I don't think is the most combustible thing in the world. No. Um, and then I think there were, there was also natural gas. They eventually laid gas lines to these things too. So all you had to do was walk around with a, um, 
like a, a whale, probably a whale blubber torch on the end of your staff and just touch touch the lamp wick and there you go. Yeah. And then I think uh, they made something like $2 a day for this, at least in Lowell, Mass. It's not bad. In 1888? No, it's King's Ransom. <laughs> uh, I did see that there are still some people that do this today. Uh, there are certain parts of England where they still light the lamps, and I, I'm sure it's a bit of a novelty. Sure. But um, I don't know that it's necessarily like uh, like colonial Williamsburg or anything. I think it's not like it has to be a, an old uh, relic-themed town. Just one that's involved in being charming. Yeah. Yeah. Lamplighter. And if you see a lamplighter, give them a little how do you do. Yeah. Doff your cap. Yeah. So it's not extinct. It really doesn't belong on this list at all. Throw a couple of pence their ways. Their ways? Tuppence. <laughs> Remember that song from Mary Poppins? So depressing. No, but I have high hopes for that uh, reboot. Oh, I hadn't heard anything about that. Please do tell. Well, there's a new movie coming out. They're redoing uh, Mary Poppins and... And Emily Blunt is Mary Poppins, which I think it's fine casting. For sure. And I think of what's his name? Lynn Manuel Miranda himself is in the uh I was about to say the Dick Cavett part, but that wasn't Dick Cavett. Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. The chimney sweep. Yeah, uh Dick Cavett. That would have been a much different role. <laughs> yeah. <what> a... <laughs> tell me, Mary, tell me about your life. Shall we move on to ice cutting? Yeah, this one I love. It's fascinating. You There's know my grandmother whole... Bryant said icebox. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that that was, like, part of her jam, right? Like, a, an actual, like, something you would point to and say, that's a refrigerator. But no, 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 friend, there's no refrigeration going on whatsoever. It's just an insulated wooden box that you jam a block of ice into the top of and let it cool the rest of it down. Yeah, I mean, if she, she lived to be 100, and she passed away probably, I don't know, like 8 or 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. she was definitely... Rocking the icebox when she was a kid. For sure. And into her probably, like, um, married life, I would guess, the early married life. Yeah, I mean, she told me a story one time about uh, when she was, uh, like, 12 or 13, she and her two friends stole the uh, the horse and carriage that delivered the mail <laughs> and rode it around town. Nice. <laughs> for a joyride. That sounds awesome. So she was definitely a link to the past. For sure. It was great hearing those stories. The male horse. Hats off to you, Granny Bryant. Yeah, hats off, Granny Bryant. So she had an icebox. I mm -hmm. just described an icebox. But the question is this, Chuck. Let's say, where was Granny Bryant born and raised? I don't know where she was born, but she generally lived most of her life in Tennessee. Okay, in Tennessee. So it's the middle of the summer, and it's super hot, but you have an icebox. What are you going to do for ice? Well, fortunately, the good folks up in Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota spent the winter harvesting ice. And that was a job you could have, was an ice harvester. Because mm -hmm. before there was the advent of making mechanical ice and mechanical refrigeration, we got ice by literally harvesting it from frozen ponds and lakes and rivers during the winter, packing it away just so, and then come summertime, it would be distributed throughout the country and delivered to homes by, again, horse and carriage like the mail, apparently. Amazing. So here's how it would work. You would, uh, sometimes they could use a pond, but generally very slow moving water was best uh, because it formed really good clear ice. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw something about ponds weren't great because uh, the ice could become kind of stagnant and not yeah. not super great. 
Uh, gross. Yeah, so maybe a very slow-moving river would be great. And the first thing that you want to do is is probably use a horse-drawn plow because you don't want that thing packed up with snow on top of it. No, because the snow actually keeps the ice from freezing as, yeah. as well because you want cold wind on it, not cold snow, right? Right. So you got the horse keeping the, the snow clear. That's one, one step one. Yeah, and this would, they would call these ice farms. Mm-hmm. And, like, you would have an ice farm. Like, if somebody came and tried to poach your ice, you had a legal dispute going on. Like, this is a big deal. And during the summer, it was just like a river or a um, an aerated pond or something like that. But come come wintertime, it became like big business. You'd have whole crews and operations going on, right? Oh, yeah. So you've got this, the horses clearing the snow, and every once in a while, a horse would fall through the ice. Yeah, that's and so sad. It is sad, and you would think, well, so long, horse. But apparently, somebody figured out that you could strap a rope around a horse's neck, and it would be struggling under the water. And if you pulled the, the neck tight, I guess you kind of cut off its air enough to get it to quit struggling. <laughs> sounds awful. It does. And then other horses would pull that horse out of the water and giving it a fighting chance to survive. So that was a, a big hazard, not just for horses, but for the people working there, too. Yeah, and they would wear special uh, horseshoes that would prevent them from slipping and breaking through as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I would imagine a horse-drawn plow on ice is just an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> I remember growing up in Toledo, we, we were allowed to ice skate on some of the ponds on the golf course, like across the, the street from us. Uh-huh. And... Um, but not until Dad went out with his work boots on yeah. and stomped around the pond Man. to make sure that it didn't crack. And it was like, that was really great that he was doing that for us, but it was also not the best technique you could think of. No. Although it's the only technique I can think of, really. But hats off to Dad, too, for stomping on the pond ice for us to make sure we didn't fall through. So your dad would do that? Oh, yeah, every every winter. Some, wow. Sometimes a couple of times a winter, depending on whether the ice had started to thaw or not. Yeah, I've seen too many movies. That just scares me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess uh, well, I didn't. you don't really think much about your mortality as a youngster, you know? No. Good You're kind point. of invincible. Uh, so, all right. So they're clearing the snow. The, it gets super frozen when there's no snow. Mm-hmm. Like, really frozen. <laughs> and then you would come in and score the ice. Because just cutting it is is too tough by that point. So you score it by uh, cutting into it, uh, I guess, a few inches mm-hmm. and getting it going. Uh, depending on your operation, d- dependent on the kind of size of an ice block you want. But they, they said in our article maybe two feet by six feet mm-hmm. was pretty standard. And then you would cut it all the way through with another horse-drawn device. Mm-hmm. A horse-drawn saw? Uh, I think almost all the way through, and then humans would saw it the rest of the way. And then you've got like a floating two foot by six foot by however thick the ice was chunk of ice, right? Yeah. And that's heavy. That's a very heavy thing. So you would kind of push it with sticks through a channel that you had to carve out to the shoreline. And um, then you had to figure out a way to raise it out of the water onto like a, a cart or something like that and then take it to the ice house which was a probably a cement like cinder block building that um, you would pack with sawdust uh, so that this ice wouldn't melt onto one another or melt at all during the summer and then just wait for summer to come and then bam start charging people money 
Yep. And this was a job through like the 1930s until, you know, refrigeration became a thing. Mm -hmm. And then people like my grandmother, they couldn't. They couldn't stop saying icebox or tinfoil. Yeah, tinfoil. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I still say tinfoil sometimes. Sure. Yeah, totally. And oleo. She said oleo instead of butter. It, that's that's grody. Yeah. How could you eat that if you call it oleo, you know? <laughs> I don't know. She never. I don't know why she said that because she didn't use butter. She used the uh, big bell jar of bacon grease that she collected. Wowie. Sitting on the stove. Like even on bread? Uh, no, 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 just oh, for okay. cooking. I gotcha. But she was old school, man. Yeah, that is old school. It's kind of neat when you have a link to the past like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing about ice cutting. Um, one of the best Three Stooges ever was called an ache in every steak, and they were ice delivery men. I think I remember that. Yeah, they had a lot of trouble with it, as as you can expect. There were probably some tongs placed in the wrong area at one <laughs> point. <laughs> Poor Mo. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, and Curly. Yeah, I think they both got it. Probably Curly did it first accidentally to Mo, and then Mo retaliated on purpose, <laughs> if I remember correctly. All right, two more to go. Yeah, we really are doing eight this time, huh? I think so. So, Chuck, when you go to a bowling alley, right, mm-hmm. um, and you roll the ball, I'm going to go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt that you would hit a strike. Well, thank you. Strike. <laughs> Isn't that how you say it? I don't think so. Um, when you knock all those pins down, an awesome machine comes down. Well, there wouldn't be any pins left. But if there was one standing, a machine would come down, grab it, raise it, and then a sweeper would come and push all the knockdown pins that you hit, which are called deadwood, by the way, mm-hmm. back into a little uh, pit. And then a new set would come down and reset and your ball would shoot out. And the whole thing is a marvel of mechanical engineering. It's all mechanical. But there was a time where if you went bowling, there were little boys back there who did all the the jobs that I just said that machine did. They're known as pin setters. That's right. And we have Mr. Gottfried Freddy Schmidt to thank uh, for the automatic pin spotter uh, in 1946 where he debuted this thing at the American Bowling Congress tournament. Mm -hmm. But like you said, previous to that, they had little pin boys who would – for about, what, 10 cents per game? Per bowler per game. So if you had like six bowlers bowling in a in a game, you would, you'd make 60 cents a game technically. Oh, really? Uh-huh, yeah, you could make some dough if you really hustled. Wow, that's not it, bad. For a 10-year-old at the time, not at all. Yeah, but here's the thing, too. I mean, I guess it's the, the great way to, or the best way to pay them for a bowling alley, but uh, because you don't want to pay them while there's no one bowling. No, no, it's like per bowler per per game. So yeah, if you're just standing around, you're not making any money. Yeah, so they would they would set the pins up. They would uh, they would wipe the pins away by means of carrying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually had pin bars that they would step on to raise these little metal spikes, and that's how they would align the pins. They just didn't eyeball it. Right. And I read an account by a former pin pin setter. Um, and so you're hanging out there where people are throwing the bowling ball, where it hits the back. Like, you're hanging out back there. Sure. So there's a couple of things going on. Um, apparently, teenagers would love to take aim, sometimes drunken adults. So you had to watch out for people bowling at you. Uh, pins sometimes would get knocked to the back and hit you in the shin or the head or something like that. But this account that I read was um, 
this guy, this kid was saying like there was no better way to like secretly enter the world of adults than to be a pin setter. Because adults would go bowl and get drunk, and you were in the back basically invisible, but you're hearing everything, you're seeing everything. You could hear something from way down there? Yeah, from way back there, from what this guy said. At the very least, you could watch their, their physical behavior or whatever. But, um, yeah, he said he learned quite a bit about human nature by being a pin setter. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the equivalent of trying to throw your ball at the pin setter mm-hmm. is when you go to a golf driving range. Precisely. <laughs> Dude comes out in the in the '65 Volkswagen Beetle with a ball uh, trough on the front of it, mm-hmm. and everybody on that driving range tries to hit that car yeah. <laughs> in unison. Yeah, it's just I think one of the things you do. I haven't been to a driving range in forever, but when that car comes out, there's one objective. Yep, see if you can hit it. And then that guy driving or the girl driving just screams at the top of their lungs, stop, stop, <laughs> I'm a human being. Well, and for the for people who don't understand, these these old cars are heavily caged, so it's not like you're going to hit anybody or break through a window or anything like that. Sure, you're not, but they also electrify the cage so that the person <laughs> can't get out. It's pretty fun. I've always wanted to drive one of those. I've never seen a Beetle. I've always seen like some sort of like a lawn tractor or something like that with a Popemobile top on it. Oh, see, back at, uh, I don't know, I haven't played golf in a long time, but all the courses I went to had just old jalopies. Yeah, it sounds like the people running the courses you went to were smoking grass. (laughs) Growing grass and smoking grass. That's right. Uh, So what else about these people, pin spotters? Basically, overnight, they vanished. Uh, The the first moment... Those automatic pin setters came about. Yeah. That was that was that. But the that kid whose account I read, or the the man whose account I read as a kid, no, that still doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not going to say it a third way. Um, he said that it took him about two months to realize that you set set the pins and then you roll the ball back to give yourself time to get out of the way. If you roll the ball back and set the pins, by that time the person's got their ball ready and they take aim for you. Man, jerks. <laughs> jerks indeed. Bowlers, notorious jerks. <clears throat> Some of them, sure. Like John Leguizamo. No, John Turturro. <laughs> oh, Jesus? Yeah. I liked Jesus. You did, huh? Well, except for the fact that he was a, a pederist. He was a bit of a jerk, too. Yeah, he was a pederist. <laughs> I forgot about that part. Uh, yeah, okay. So, pin setters, done. Done. <laughs> Uh, the last one, this is my favorite of all time. Yeah. Party line operator. Not to be confused with the party line operators from the party lines of the 80s and 90s. These are the much more innocent party lines of the early 20th century. Yeah, so here's how telephoning used to work back in the old days. If you lived out in the sticks, uh, and imagine even in certain city blocks, but if you lived out in the rural areas, mm-hmm. you would have a shared telephone line between sometimes 10 or 20 houses, uh, and you would have your own special ring Mm -hmm. that you would be able to recognize. And when someone calls, all 20 houses, uh, the phone rings, and you have to know your ring Mm -hmm. to answer. Or you're going to pick up and be listening to your neighbor's conversation, which Which also happened a lot. Yeah, apparently it was called rubbering. I have no idea why, but... That's what you were doing. You're eavesdropping on your neighbor. Yeah, and it's called a party line. Yeah, and so the party line um, 
it, they they had party lines because this is at a time when running telephone line and operating it and maintaining it was very very expensive because it was early in the telephone's infancy, right? Sure. So you, rural Nebraskan, should just thank your lucky stars that you even have a telephone. <laughs> don't don't try to get all fancy and ask for just your own line. That would come later. Yes. But um, when you had this party line. You you could ring your own neighbor on the same party line if you knew their ring. Like it, when you look at the um, the old telephones where you have the receiver that you hold up to your ear and you speak into the mouthpiece, mm-hmm. it, it, you see people crank it sometimes. What they're doing is they're actually turning a magnet inside a spool of co- uh, copper coil um, so that – and they're, they're turning it in a way that it's mimicking the ring – of the family on their party line they're trying to reach. So if the the family's ring is a long, short, long, they're like ring, ring, ring. That's how they're they're spinning the the magnet. Creates a current which translates into the ring on all of the other phones in the party line. So you could call people yourself, but if you wanted to call outside of your party line, you had to dial the operator. Yes, which was a long ring. Uh, and you would call Central, what they called Central, which is where the switchboard was. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, someone was there 24 hours a day. Yeah, lived there. Yeah, and like in their little apartment that they would they would have set up for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you if you needed an emergency, it was generally agreed upon that the longest ring possible was an emergency. So if you're on a party line of like, let's say, 15 houses and there's a tornado coming through, sure. you're, you're the first one to see it, you would do a long, 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 long ring. And everybody on that party line would either just know that's a warning or they would know to pick up. Right. All Everyone could pick up the phone at once, and Elmer could say, we got a tornado coming. <laughs> and then it was like uh, the origins of 911. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it was a good way to communicate quickly with your neighbors. It was, it was a lifesaver. Yeah. Another reason you should just be happy to have any kind of phone line you hayseed <laughs> so this rubbering thing was, was like you said, it was quite a, as you can imagine, since there have been neighbors, there have been neighbors trying to get another neighbor's business. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it was a big deal. Like sometimes they even said in here, you could kind of fashion a speakerphone if you just wanted to listen in but not stand there <laughs> by just letting the earpiece drop into like a bucket or something. And go, oops. Yep. And it would just, you know, amplify the sound and you could go about cleaning your house and listening in on your neighbor's conversation. Yeah, and something Granny Bryant knew but took to her grave and never shared with anybody is that if you hung it, dangled it into a crock of bacon fat, it would really (laughs) amplify it. That's correct. I'm sure she had a party line. There's no way. She lived in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Starting in the 1900s. In Mississippi, Definitely had a party line. Yeah, for sure. And this actually, I mean, party lines went on for a while. As, you know, in the city... Um, where, it, you know, people just demanded respect from phone companies. You you got your own line sooner than later. But out in the rural areas, they continued on quite a while. And there was actually a movie called Pillow Talk starring Doris Day and Rock Hudson. Pretty great, cute little rom-com from the late 50s. But it was from 1959, and the whole basis of the plot revolved around a party line. Oh, yeah, like a mix-up? Mm-hmm. An intentional mix-up. He, sure. he toyed with her a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I like it. Uh, well, that's it, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Fo- party line operators, they went the way of the dinosaur when everybody started getting their own line. And you didn't need the party line operator. Nope. So long. Get out of 
get out of this office that you live in. And now we've evolved to the point where everyone has their own Wi-Fi that's locked down by password. Nobody can use it. Yeah, think about it. Do you remember the times when you would call a number and you 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 could get any one of a, a number of family members at the same number? And now it's like you call somebody and you are calling that person. Yeah. Everyone has a phone number. It's like a, a, the next evolution from a party, from party lines to individual household lines to now individual people have lines. Yeah, and because then, uh, you would call and say, can I speak to Josh? Mm-hmm. And then mom would say, Josh, phone. And then after a couple of minutes, you'd hear, mom, hang up. <laughs> Stop rubbering. <laughs> and then mom would fake it because she needed to know about all your uh, cigarette activities. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> She'd be like, I didn't know he switched to menthol. (laughs) That's it. All right. I got nothing else. All right. Extinct jobs. Will yours be next? We'll find out in 10 years. (laughs) Uh, If you want to know more about extinct jobs, there's there's an article. We didn't cover two of them on the site at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Christiania. Mm Mm-hmm. Follow-up. We heard from quite a few people mm-hmm. that have been to this little idyllic, or is it, idyllic village in uh, near Copenhagen. Yeah, in Denmark. Yeah, De- Denmark, uh, which is where Copenhagen is. That's right. Uh, hey, guys, been an avid listener for about five years. Uh, I do not live in uh, Christiania. Is that how it's pronounced? Christi- I think Christiana. All right. She may have misspelled it. Okay. Uh, but I did visit about five years ago. My cousin lives in Copenhagen. I live in Ireland. And he took me on a trip there after dark in the middle of winter. It is a beautiful place filled with arts, crafts, and striking architecture. When we first entered, my cousin was quick to point out the sign that said, Have fun, don't run, no photos. I asked him why, and he said due to the nature of the site, uh, like the sale of cannabis and other soft drugs that are otherwise illegal uh, and in fact, I'm adding this part myself. They're illegal there as well, because um, apparently other people said the cops will raid it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, she says occasionally it is raided by police, and running is seen as a threat of danger, and as is photography for the same reasons. So apparently you don't run there, brother. No. You just chill. Yeah, just take it slow, man. Uh, at just 19, I was pretty intimidated, but what I saw was lawlessness until my cousin mentioned we go for dinner there. He took me up a stairway covered in graffiti and artwork only to uh, open heavy doors into what remained my favorite restaurant of all time. Yeah, this sounds pretty amazing. Uh, Low wooden beamed ceilings, white tablecloths, and a simple, gorgeous, entirely in Danish menu that my cousin kindly translated. What followed was the most beautiful and memorable meal I've ever had, and it changed my idea that this place was lawless and scary. Uh, Since then, I've urged any friends to visit Denmark to stop by. Uh, Next time I visit my cousin, I'll be sure to go during the day taking the beautiful murals in the sun. Uh, between you guys and the McElroys, I hope to never run out of informative and entertaining podcasts. You never will. Uh, lots of love, your Irish pal. Thanks a lot, Irish pal. That was a great story. Man, the idea of going to the best restaurant you've ever been to in an anarchist project <laughs> in Denmark is pretty awesome. Yeah, and other people too, I should point out, just that went during the day talked about how just insane some of these uh, houses were because at one point I think there was a a, a contest or something mm-hmm. and all of these houses or a lot of these houses were built during that time frame and you know they just range from these crazy art looking homes to 
just very modest things, but it just sounds like a, some people did send a few pictures. Like decorating your cubicle around a holiday or something. <laughs> Which right? I don't do. No. Neither do you. No. So uh, if you want to get in touch with me and Chuck, you can follow us on social. You can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and all of our links are there. You're going to love it. And uh, you can also send us an email, right, Chuck? That's right. Send it to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 